listening to MuniCast, the podcast that discusses municipal leadership. Season 5 of MuniCast is brought to you by SASTEL's innovation and collaboration team. SASTEL can help you sort through the noise to create solutions that add value quickly, whether it's reducing your environmental footprint, driving investment, community development, or just saving money. Contact your SASTEL account manager to find out more. MuniCast is hosted by SUMA, the voice of Saskatchewan's hometowns. I'm Stephanie, SUMA's Education and Events Advisor, and I'm joined today by Sean McKenzie, SUMA's Director of Advocacy Services. In Season 5 of MuniCast, we are discussing how truth and reconciliation relates to municipalities. On this episode, I'm joined by Sandra Bender, Bilingual Community Engagement and Education Program Coordinator with the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation. Sandra is a lifelong human rights advocate and brings her passion for public education to her work. She is a proud member of the 2S LGBTQIA community, feminist and neurodivergent, and believes in bringing an intersectional lens to every aspect of her life. Past work has included Indigenous land claims advocacy, work with unhoused communities in Winnipeg and Atlanta, and work with newly arrived refugees, and advocacy with the local 2S LGBTQIA community. The National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, or NCTR, is a place of learning and dialogue where the truths of residential school survivors, families, and communities are honored and kept safe for future generations. The NCTR educates Canadians on the profound injustices inflicted on First Nations, Inuit, and the Métis Nation by the forced removal of children to attend residential schools and the widespread abuse suffered in those schools. They preserve the record of these human rights abuses and promote continued research and learning on the legacy of residential schools. Their goal is to honor survivors and to foster reconciliation and healing on the foundation of truth-telling. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you very much for joining us today for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada has outlined 94 calls to action, with a portion of those calls being directed towards government, some to all levels of government, including municipalities. In earlier episodes of this podcast, we've discussed the legal requirements for municipalities, why education is a crucial component of reconciliation that municipalities can be partaking in, and how municipalities can learn from organizations who are strengthening their engagement with Indigenous communities and individuals, as well as how reconciliation and governance are interconnected. From the perspective of the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, what are some ways that you see municipalities working to address truth and reconciliation as outlined in the calls to action? So, like you said, there are 94 calls to action, and many of them apply to all levels of government, as they say. How those get interpreted really depend on what level of government we're talking about, uh, what arena we're talking about, what size of uh, body we're talking about. So it really depends on the specific call. Call to Action 57 um, is really specific to getting education uh, to municipalities, uh, or all public servants, in fact. So um, that one is one that... I think this podcast is partially fulfilling already. So that's already a good start. So as you said, this podcast has kind of taken one of those first steps. So municipalities listening in are starting to kind of get more acquainted in education about reconciliation and truth and where they can fit into that. Many municipalities have taken some of those first steps 
Uh, what are some ways that they would be able to build on or work with what they've already started? I always think that more education is key. Um, the great Honorable Murray Sinclair once said, education is what got us into this and education is what will get us out of it. Um, and I absolutely resonate with that. I think there is never going to be enough education around it, frankly. It's not enough for uh, an organization of any sort to have one training session and that be it for understanding what's happened and what needs to be reconciled and how that reconciliation can look. Uh, in my role, uh, I'm the Community Engagement and Education Program Coordinator for the NCTR. So uh, the bulk of my role with the NCTR is giving education presentations. And one of the things that I find regularly is that the missing link tends to be between what happened in the past with the residential school system and making links into why we're still talking about it, why we still need to be talking about it. So that kind of education, um, understanding those links between, you know, it is history, but it's recent history, and those effects are still going on, making very specific connections so that we understand how reconciliation needs to be applied. I think that the City of Toronto, for instance, has a really robust plan laid out on their website, just to choose one municipality as an example. So for instance, on their website, uh, they have a whole action plan, which is really detailed. Uh, it's split into eight categories of health, reconciliation itself, uh, professional development and training for public servants, museums and archives, um, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, so us, uh, commemoration, sports and reconciliation, and newcomers to Canada. So they're really specific parts of the calls to action that they have decided to build action plans around um, and see how that can be applied at the city level. So I think that's a good example, say, for any municipality to look to, because I know Toronto is bigger than any one municipality anywhere in the prairies or anywhere else pretty much in Canada. But that's a really good example of, of a model that we can look to for um, what does an action plan look like? What does concrete uh, reconciliation look like at a municipal level? It sounds like there's a lot of different ways that municipalities can be and have been engaging. And one of the ways is the, an event of uh, the NCTRs that is Reconciliation Week. How do you find that municipalities tend to engage in that sort of event? For Truth and Reconciliation Week, um, we frankly, we have so many participants, which is amazing, uh, that for a lot of them, we don't actually track specifically who engaged. But even outside of you know, Truth and Reconciliation Week, um, we give these educational presentations year round. So uh, it it's, can be as simple as just engaging us for a presentation. But we do offer ongoing year round education in different ways. Uh, I would say we consider any engagement in, say, Orange Shirt Day to be a participation in our activities. Like Phyllis Webstead, the founder of Orange Shirt Day, uh, it was Phyllis whose orange shirt was taken from her. She's a member of the NCTR's Survivor Circle, which is one of our two governing bodies. So Orange Shirt Day is, in essence, an NCTR activity. So if someone is wearing an orange shirt, you are partaking in a reconciliation activity. So we do develop um, content for adult groups, um, some school age activities as well. Um, so during TNR week specifically, uh, there were hundreds of thousands of 
people participating as individuals, as government bodies, as private organizations. So it's, yeah, it's pretty widespread, um, but it, it's hard to track like exactly which towns and cities participated. We are seeing more and more and more demand for educational presentations. Um, and those can be as small as, you know, four or five people. Um, I think personally, my largest one has been around 3,000 people. Uh, we do them virtually uh, for the most part because we do need to be available to the nation. <laughs> and we're here in Winnipeg. So uh, if if people want to bring us out to present in person, we do that too. Uh, and we are seeing more demand for that all the time, which is fantastic. One of the, the things that we've seen adopted most widely uh, with respect to reconciliation is the land acknowledgement piece. And I, I think there's there's a lot of uh, strength there in terms of it telling the truth of what was in the treaties and what the relationships mm -hmm. were supposed to be, the truth of, of all of us standing on treaty territory. And I wonder if you can maybe uh, talk to us a little bit about the importance of truth as it's paired with reconciliation and the power of that truth. That is a fantastic question. I think that if we don't know the full truth, we don't know what it is we need to reconcile. I think that land acknowledgements are a fantastic thing. Um, I think the trap can be that they become repetitive or if they're not backed up with meaningful action, it, it can feel like an empty gesture. I think it's really important for people to come together and say, uh, recognize the truth that some of this land uh, falls under legal obligations grouped into the treaties. Uh, quite a lot of the land that we all live on um, doesn't. A lot of what what we would call crown land is unceded, untreated uh, Indigenous land. So at least acknowledging the responsibilities that we have, because uh, treaties are nation-to-nation relationships. Um, they're not just a Canadian thing. You know, these are global ways of understanding nation-to-nation -nation, uh, commitments. Um, so just to have a treaty land acknowledgement to say we are on land that is covered by a legal agreement um, that is not being upheld by the nation in power, I think is just a good reminder. That's part of the truth of our country. That, you know, and if if we're not acknowledging it fully or fully acknowledging the damages of the residential school system, which very much paved the way for the colonization process in Canada, if we are not acknowledging that fact alone or the many and ongoing harms of that system, then we are not going to be able to start fixing it, which is what reconciliation is. That's a great point, Sandra. Thank you for that. Um, I just want to follow up on that just a little bit because we do think truth is so important. And I know um, for those of us that have had the opportunity to have a residential school survivor uh, speak to us, that can be an incredibly impactful gesture, that sharing and sharing the understanding that comes out of that. Um, and I, I've no doubt that that you've probably heard quite a few uh, elders speak to to these sorts mm -hmm. of things as well. And I wonder if you could speak to what we can all take away from those stories, the truth that's coming out in those stories and how we can, I guess, internalize that in terms of, of our actions and reconciliation. I think it's 
really important to hear um, people's direct lived experience. I think that hearing from survivors is important because it makes it tangible. I think when you're hearing sort of a broad historic overview, whether it's of an international outside of Canada genocide, like the Holocaust, um, we sort of hear it in the, in the way that we hear um, content in a history course. You know, it's facts and dates and whatnot. Um, I think that hearing lived experience makes it visceral, something that we can really connect to uh, and feel. I think if you're hearing those stories, at least the, the sort of stories that I've heard, if you're not moved by them somehow, if you can sit through hearing, you know, people's traumatic experiences and not be moved by it, I think I think that's an issue. But what I've seen is that people are moved by it. The question is always, I think, for a lot of organizations, which order to do their learning in. Mm. Um, I've seen a lot of groups want to hear from a survivor first and then maybe get some contextualization. I I personally find it more helpful. Well, as long as there is that contextualization, because one story is one story, but to understand on a systemic level, what the system was, how it was implemented, what the ideology behind that implementation was, how and when it happened, to have that all laid out, and then hear a survivor's story to give it context and connect it to the principles involved. Um, I think having both of those pieces is really important. Across the province, SASTEL is engaged with many different municipal organizations who seek to innovate. Contact your SASTEL account manager to learn more about these initiatives and how they can help your municipality today. As you were uh, talking about before, the this is a re very recent history for, for a lot of Canadians because we do talk about it like it happened a long time ago. Yeah. But the last standing residential school was right here in Saskatchewan and it closed down in the mid-90s, which is within the lifetime of most of our listeners. And the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation was able to assist some of the surrounding communities with the support and partnership of some uh, academics from the University of Saskatchewan and the University of Alberta. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what the NCTR's role was in supporting these communities? Um, yeah, uh, we have a few different specific ways of offering communities support. For instance, in the case you were just mentioning, um, one thing that was done was the creation of a memorandum of understanding to get that community uh, access to the archives. Um, so all of the TRC's archives that they gathered in their many events um, are now in our care and keeping. We have a whole archives team. Um, we have an access and privacy team that handles the legal side of, of that record access. Uh, but we generally hold a very firm uh, collective opinion that people have a right to their own information. So helping a, a community get easier access to their own records, um, that was a part of it. So making a formal MOU to get that archive access. Um, we have a missing children uh, and unmarked burials working group, and they specifically connected with this community. Um, we also run a fund uh, called the Naimi Kwenimak Support Fund, 
Um, in fact, we have a talk coming up um, with the, our intergovernmental liaison, Jennifer Wood, who's going to speak about that fund and how communities can apply for it. What it does is provide communities with funding to create some kind of memorial for the people their community lost uh, to residential schools. We also host, we, the NCTR, host the National Advisory Committee for Missing Children and Unmarked Burials. So they have their own website, resources, um, and work <laughs> uh, that we support. We also have um, uh, someone who's dedicated just to community engagement, who goes into communities to say, so you had a residential school here. Have you thought about doing a ground search? Um, and if so, um, then walking them through the process of how to get that going. But in the case of that particular um, school, uh, that that those are some of the things that the NCTR was able to do. Walking with people as they get their records access or access to their loved ones or family members' records, um, that's an ongoing process. And there's a whole there's a whole um, infrastructure for how a person gets access if it's not publicly available on our archive site. So what, helping people figure that out is uh, a big part of our work as well. Thanks, Sandra. Uh, you spoke a little bit about the unmarked graves uh, that are around so many residential schools, and, and there are quite a number of residential schools in Saskatchewan. Um, mm -hmm. Back in 2021, I, I think a lot of us, even that we're aware of the residential school system, were shocked uh, by the staggering scope and, and, and numbers yeah. of unmarked graves on some of these first First Nations where the residential school sites used to be. I wonder if you have any advice for municipalities uh, that include or, or are near a residential school site and how they can uh, work with their surrounding First Nations to acknowledge that history and mm -hmm. kind of, um, I don't want to say just share sympathy, but, but gain that understanding um, and show acceptance and caring toward that First Nation. Oh, that's a fantastic question. And yeah, for us in the prairies, especially pertinent because of how many residential schools were on the prairies. In equity seeking group work, there's a general maxim of nothing for us without us. Uh, so I would say the very first step is always to consult with those nations and find out what is wanted or needed as far as support or solidarity or help, um, if that's it. As far as these sites go obviously there isn't one collective opinion about what should be done uh with the buildings that are left standing a fairly common take is is that some kind of preservation should be done um as a form of commemoration um in the same way that other sites of genocide are, are typically used like the way the concentration camps in germany uh, many have been preserved so that you can visit and ideally learn the killing fields in cambodia have a similar infrastructure a lot of places do a couple of examples that come to mind are the assiniboia residential school building uh, which is here in winnipeg uh, it now houses the canadian center for child protection uh, which feels like a good and appropriate way of transforming that space into something directly meant to heal the history of that space in another case uh, the shingwalk residential school in ontario has now become an educational center where people can visit including the cemetery site itself which is one of the few that actually still resembles a cemetery with headstones as opposed to most burial sites which look like fields in cases where the building isn't standing anymore um, uh, many communities 
uh, have created memorials, uh, again, sometimes using that fund I mentioned, but building, putting something there that's helpful and healing. There are so many options. Some communities have had health clinics built in un- unserviced or underserved areas uh, or an educational center for adults or for youth or healing centers, healing lodges. I mean, if a municipality is really dedicated to reconciliation, there's always the option of of giving the land back into Indigenous governance. So depending on where a municipality is at and their level of commitment, um, there are a lot of options. If it's a situation where a ground search is to take place, uh, there's a very good document that municipalities can use um, made by the Canadian Archaeological Society. It's called Recommended Pathway for Locating Unmarked Graves Around Residential Schools. It's a document they've produced. One of the foundational principles that they've outlined is that any kind of ground search itself should be led by Indigenous community leadership. But a municipality nearby could certainly ask whether any support would be appreciated. That could be with um, funding, sourcing equipment for ground searches. That's one of the things that's held a lot of communities back from just starting their own ground searches is that renting stuff like or buying ground penetrating radar equipment is incredibly expensive. And sometimes the wait to get funding can be very long. So if a municipality wanted to help out with that, with the cost or just speeding up the process, that is generally really helpful. But again, it's a question of just asking first to see what communities need or would like. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Sandra, and and certainly speaks to the need to have any actions taken to begin with discussion and mm-hmm. and lead toward collaboration. I think that's incredibly important. What resources uh, does NCTR have available for municipalities uh, that that they could use in their own municipal offices, and how would they apply some of these tools? That's a solid question. As as far as specific resources. Uh, for municipalities, um, I would say that that's creating those is something that the National Advisory Committee has taken on, and they do have a long list of resources on their website. I know that others are currently in development, but I'm not actually sure where they're at currently. (laughs) What we mainly provide is education, but the NAC may well offer that. One of the things we've just done is launch two new educational series that are free, So this one we're calling um, Residential School uh, History and Legacy 101. It's meant to be an introductory level, uh, probably about an hour and 15 minutes long with a little bit of time for discussion or questions at the end, meant for anyone who would like to get in at the ground level and find out a bit more about that. We're planning to offer this monthly. It's a Zoom webinar, so it's, it's free, easy to access. The other series that we're having is about the NAMI Quinnimac Support Fund uh, how it's been used, um, who can apply for it, how that works, etc. So I think those should be really interesting. Those will a- alternate between featuring NCTR staff and their work and then featuring external speakers um, who will speak on a particular topic. The March one will be our first one with external speakers because March is inter- has International Women's Day. The topic we've invited people to speak on is the topic of Uh, sacred women, the notion that Indigenous women are sacred, uh, which is a concept that I was personally taught from Dr. Karen Duhamel, who was one of the authors of the National Inquiry on Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. So that contrast between the way 
indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people are sometimes quite literally treated like trash. I don't know if you're aware of our uh, landfill search controversy in Manitoba, but it's uh, a discussion over whether or not to search a landfill for known uh, human remains of Indigenous women who were murdered and disposed of there. Dr. Edzirimel herself is one of the speakers for this, as well as an Indigenous elder and another Indigenous woman who's forged her way in the in the corporate sector. So I think that these are just ongoing options for people to learn. And again, those are free as well. Education is the main resource we offer. Thank you, Sandra. That sounds like it'll be some very insightful conversations coming up. And so hopefully some of our members will have the opportunity to to join in and engage with those too. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. This has been a really insightful conversation. So I appreciate you being here. Do you have any final comments that you would like to make for our listeners? I would just say that everyone is in their own place in their learning and understanding journey. We really like to think of Canada as a good country. It's really easy to kind of look at other countries in the world and say, well, we're a lot better than them. <laughs> um, so I think that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks to, to really getting to a place of understanding because a lot of people tend to feel a bit of a knee-jerk uh, instinct to defend systems, which they're maybe being told that they're the beneficiaries of while other people are still being oppressed by them. That's not a comfortable thought. No, uh, you know, we like to live at peace with the realities that we're in. So our brains find ways to try to make that make sense. Responding to the subject matter in general for non-Indigenous people tends to produce a bit of a defensive reaction. So that's one of my first most broadly applicable pieces of advice is, you know, if you find yourself getting defensive about the stuff, just keep listening. Uh, if you can possibly listen to a survivor directly, do. Um, there are lots of great documentaries. There are reports like there. There are so many ways to keep learning podcasts like this one. If people's attention spans are shorter, there are TED Talks, <laughs> there's fiction, there are movies, there are the actual reports like the calls to action. Um, the, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples uh, is out there too. Uh, and that applies to Indigenous peoples globally, not just here in Canada. So understanding even what the legal rights of Indigenous peoples are and Canada is a signatory country to that declaration. So we as a nation agree with those rights. There's a lot we can do, but if we're at an earlier point in our learning journey, that's okay. I would say just keep going. This brings us to the end of another episode of MuniCast. The final episode of season five will feature a conversation on economic reconciliation with Cadmus Delorme and Thomas Benjo of One Hoop. The episode will be available on February 21st.